Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. Before the episode, I want to tell you really quickly that we are running an audience survey to learn more about our audience and look for feedback on improving the show. The last one we did was September 2021, and this show has just about doubled since then. So it's a good chance for us to get more feedback and learn how our audience has changed since then. It's really quick. It's a Google form. It only takes two minutes. There's a link in the description for this episode, and I really hope you can fill it out because it's really, really helpful for us to get feedback on the podcast and how to improve. And it's kind of interesting. There's not really a great natural way for you as a podcast listener to give us feedback. With an email newsletter, you can hit reply or find the author and reach out that way, which you can do on the podcast, but there's not any real personal information that you're telling iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast platform you're listening on about you. No one is asking you for your LinkedIn or your job role or what have you. And so surveys are the best way we have to learn more about our audience as a podcast. So real quickly, it's only two minutes. It's a Google form. It should be in the description. I really appreciate you sharing your feedback and helping us improve the show. Thank you. And now on to the episode. This episode is the first in a three-part series we are running on Chenmark, one of the most well-known and studied holding companies in the entrepreneurship through acquisition world. And for good reason. Since their founding in 2015, they have acquired 11 operating companies, completed 30-plus acquisitions when including add-ons, and have over 600 employees today. This series is not meant to be a one-stop shop for everything Chenmark. The Higginses have appeared on Invest Like the Best, there's a fantastic case study by A.J. Wasserstein about them, and they share their thoughts every week through their weekly thoughts newsletter, which is one of my favorites. Instead, this series is meant to dive into topic gaps, where I am most personally curious, and areas of change for Chenmark. For this first episode, we cover the risk-reward of their path early on, founding ideals, and various pivots and challenges in starting Chenmark. The second episode focuses on the operating ethos, culture, and incentive structures, and the third and final episode takes a deep dive on their CEO recruiting function and what has to happen to keep Chenmark on their growth trajectory. I hope you enjoyed this series. Please enjoy this first episode with Trish and Palmer Higgins. Every CEO and entrepreneur needs support from a team of expert professionals like attorneys, bankers, and accountants like Hood and Strong. Less often mentioned, but just as important, is insurance, and August Felker and his team at Oberly Risk Strategies are the experts you need on your team to navigate the insurance needs of your company, as dozens of past podcast guests have partnered with them to do. Oberly helps you evaluate what your current and soon-to-be-acquired company needs for insurance today, while also anticipating what it might need tomorrow. To get in touch, email august at august.felker at oberly-risk.com or visit their website at overly-risk.com. And now for some advice and observations on insurance for small companies, here's August himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. Can I just roll the insurance from the company I just acquired into my ownership of that business? That's a great question. So one of the questions we get from our clients a lot is, you know, hey, can't we just take the existing insurance that's there and just keep it through the ownership transition? And the answer really is, is not typically. First off, insurance is not assignable. So they, the insurance carriers that insure the current business want to make sure they know the owners of that current business, what that current business does. So they, they don't allow for the insurance program to automatically be assigned to another entity. And that would be the case if it was an asset deal. So in an asset deal, usually... 9.9 times out of 10, the insurance carriers will require a brand new insurance program to be created. And so that that's something to really think about and know and get started on ahead of time. In a stock deal where the, um, sort of the I would say the FEN, FEIN stays the same throughout the ownership transition, a lot of the insurance carriers still have protection because they want to make sure they know who that new owner is and are uncomfortable about just continuing to insure someone through through an ownership transition. So they have like these change in control clauses where if there is a change in ownership, they have the right to cancel the policies. So those are two big things to look out for as you're, as you're buying a business is to get started early because more times than not, the insurance is going to need to be rewritten. Great. Thank you, August. To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. 
and visit their website at overly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, and Oakborn Advisors for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I think one of the fun things about studying Chimark has been your like consistent focus on a core set of values. One of my favorites perhaps is like keeping score and focusing on KPIs. And Palmer, we worked on an article for the handbook focusing on KPIs, which is really fun. Can you walk through the core values for Chimark and maybe how you came up with each of them? Like what was the set of origin ideas for each value that led to those being the, the set of values? Sure. Well, I think first it probably makes sense just to think about why we felt we needed to have core values. So when we first started, we sort of had this idea of multiple different companies, you know, cash flow generation, invest the cash flow, long-term hold. Those were all sort of things that we had very early on pretty firmly set upon. You know, best way to build a whole co is to first, you know, to buy a business first. We did that and a couple of years later, we realized we sort of had a loose collection of businesses with no sort of underlying sort of values across all the different businesses. And and there were a couple of things that they just didn't feel like they were going right. Like we kind of felt like we were grinding our gears a lot, you know, with sort of some concepts that we felt like were core to Chenmark and were core to just who we are. But we didn't really feel like we had a way to express that in the companies and hold people accountable to those sort of beliefs that we had. And so I give James a lot of credit on this because he sort of said, you know, instead of sort of being reactive to individual things that we felt weren't necessarily the way that we wanted people to be acting, like an example would be if somebody was doing some sort of short-term focused thing, you know, how do we, you know, we could react to that, but we're reacting against a specific thing. We're not necessarily creating thinking in a sort of systems approach to say, you know, what are our values and why do we sort of just have this knee-jerk reaction to that person's doing something that's offensive to those values. So a couple of years into Chenmark, we spent a fair amount of time trying to define like what are what are our values and then how so that we could then have somebody some something to hold people accountable to those values. And so we have four core values, which maybe that's too many, but maybe it's not enough. I don't know. But it is chase better, play the long game, put the team first and keep score. It depends on who you talk to, what order those should be in. I think of them as all pretty much equal, although chase better is the one that we refer to the most. And I'll pause there and let Palmer talk a little bit about each of those values and kind of where they came from. So I don't spend all my time talking. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll just say, I think the, the values are pretty obvious. The, the goal of them is to be sort of short and punchy and sort of self-descriptive. But I think the, the goal, given our focus of being very decentralized, was to have values that all of our operating companies could embrace while still embracing their own unique values. So if you were to ask any of our operating companies what their core values are, none of them would say Chenmark's core values. But ideally, they all operate in sort of a framework or in, a, in Patricia's point of systems thinking that is, is congruent with Chenmark values. And so the, that the goal is we have a, a mindset that we all adopt as part of Chenmark, but every operating company is inherently unique in their own. And CEOs and their management teams and their teams are, are encouraged to foster their own culture with their own core values. Yeah, within the kind of core values for other companies, what sort of trial and error did you have with organizations where like maybe you thought of one core value that could be interesting, but it turns out that doesn't really work with a number of other companies. And so it kind of either gets scrapped or turned into something else. What kind of experimentation was there with with values or coming up with the right set? I think there really was much experimenting, to be honest with you. I think it was just articulating ways that we already thought and felt and, and acted or at least wanted to act and just trying to articulate it and putting some shared language around it so we could all reference it. We could all reference those phrases and we all kind of, once we establish that language, we all we can reference it and then we all know what we're talking about in a little bit more detail than maybe those short phrases might otherwise convey. So there wasn't a ton of... I don't think there's really any trial and error other than trying to create a few... You know, I think force, I don't think force too much, but trying to create a few core values that could embody 
a mindset and approach to small business ownership and small business operations that we wanted to convey while while providing plenty of room for companies to to sort of make it their own. And I think that it was helpful for us to have put the core values together after a couple of years of operations. I think if we had created them when we first started, which I think there's a temptation to do, I, I, I think they would have been different and they would have been a bit more hollow because these ones are a reflection of our lived experience and sort of things that we really truly believe are important and a reflection of us and our experience. So I think that was very important. And I think that the one where we've had the most tension, especially in the early days, was the keep score because we think about, you know, it your performance at any particular time is, you know, just a snapshot of that moment. And we always believe you can get better. So even if it's bad, it's it's important to know that you're not doing well and that seeing how you can improve over time. And we sort of have always felt that as an obvious thing. I think coming from more of a traditional finance background, there's so much focus on data and performance and results. And that can be very different in a small business setting. And one thing that we came into our roles sort of wanting to do is especially implement systems that could allow us to track things. And most businesses that we you know, work with don't have formal systems in place, or if they do, they may not be sort of optimized for really great data collection and performance. And in the early days, you know, we felt like we were sort of imposing these systems on companies where there wasn't necessarily buy-in. And there was definitely a lot of, I'd say, friction where it was sort of like, well, Chenmark wants this, you know, new ERP system. And we were trying to communicate that we thought that this would be a good thing for the business so that we could collect data and know how we were doing and improve and all that sort of stuff. And one thing that said along here sort of being successful on purpose instead of successful by accident. And I think that that one core value of keeping score has helped us communicate you know, why it's important for us to spend a lot of time and resources implementing systems and keeping track of data because without that, you cannot keep score. And so that's one value that has allowed us to communicate more broadly some of the initiatives that we encourage our companies to do. And without that sort of underpinning core value to a lot of that work, it can be sort of, it can seem meaningless and it can seem more just like somebody's being asked to do a lot you know, work that they don't want to do. Yeah, have your core values generally been helpful in giving your your teams a set of values to focus on such that when you do communicate changes or things that could make companies better, it's easier to communicate those changes because you've already established a core set of things that we care about or is it or is it I bet or is it fluctuated like team to team? Like some teams it's easier to align than others or maybe over time it gets better perhaps. I think it depends a lot on the company. Honestly, we don't really yeah, you know, to Palmer's point, you know, most people in our operating business have no clue what our core values are. This is really more something we talk about with our just our leadership team. And it's something that underpins a lot of the work that's going on in the business. But we're not really that interested in coming into a company and saying, these are your core values now. We really more use it as a way to have guiding principles for you know us as well as our CEOs to use as sort of frameworks to then create their own company's sort of values and systems within their businesses. Yeah, that makes sense. And moving from the the finance careers you all had, there's I think one kind of question I've had for a while and I was talking with a friend about this last night, a kind of the risk reward question for each path. And of course there's lot there's tons of other variables within path like uh, you know independence or you know autonomy and that kind of control your destiny in many ways. But when you're thinking through you know, continuing in finance, where you, know, you had both, you know, all three of you had promising you know, careers ahead of you in finance, but what other factors beyond just independence or the desire to be in small business came as part of that thinking on which path you were going to pursue? Yeah, my case was a little bit different. I'd already left finance and I was doing the startup thing. 
and and didn't really see long term it working out for me in, in that position in that company. And so I was already sort of looking for the next thing. But even if I was in finance, I, I probably would have answered it the same way. Whether or not I would have made the leap is you know, hard to necessarily say. But I, I'd say like I personally didn't do like a very thoughtful risk reward analysis. I was interested in working with James and Trish. I was interested in the opportunity. I was comfortable betting on myself and us betting on each other and was willing to take on sort of the quote unquote risk, which at the time didn't feel like as much of a risk because I was much younger and still pretty young and didn't have a ton of responsibility, relatively speaking, in terms of you know mortgage or kids or anything like that. And so it just seemed like a why not and why not now and, and why not us? And I think looking back on, I think I've even said it on your podcast before, Alex, that I think what I've learned in, in purely in hindsight, didn't know it ahead of time that I think I was probably more comfortable than most with delayed gratification and a willingness to bet on ourselves, which at the time, I don't think I really appreciated. It just sort of felt second nature to me. Yeah, I think I was working in the hedge fund space and particularly with a lot of... had exposure to a lot of startup hedge funds. So I think I realized that especially in the the hedge fund space, my own lived experience is that it can be incredibly volatile. And, you know, you can hear these stories of, you know, these companies, you know, these funds having amazing years and people getting huge payouts, which clearly happens. But you can also be up, you know, 30% on the year on December 2nd, and somebody makes a decision to make a big bet, and then you're down and, you know, you either don't get paid or, you know, it, which is best case scenario, worst case scenario is your team gets cut and somebody else gets brought in. And I just saw a lot of that happening too. And I just sort of realized, I, I felt that I was taking a lot more risk in that space than maybe it seemed like I was from the outside looking in. And if I was going to take that amount of seemingly arbitrary risk, I might as well get all the reward. And to Palmer's point, you know, if if other people can start businesses and, you know, kind of do interesting things, like why couldn't we do something similar? And I think I really benefited from having exposure to some people in finance who had been the founders of very successful firms and could see sort of how they thought, as well as the fact that they're just people, you know, they're not gods. And I figured that, you know, if we could just do something, you know, one one hundredth of, you know, success that those people had had, that would still be like a really bright life. So I think that the notion that you're working in finance and you're not taking on risk is misguided. And I felt that I was actually taking on less risk by us going to do something ourselves and having control of what the what the outcomes were as well as getting all of the upside. Yeah, well, to, to the point also of kind of delayed gratification and capturing your own upside and taking control of your career more, uh, I would imagine you could still do that similar to the hedge fund founders that you you met throughout your work and have your own fund eventually. But I mean, that wouldn't protect you from the volatility inherent in running a hedge fund. But did you weigh that thought? Like maybe maybe in a couple of years, you could have your own fund and there you reduce maybe some of the risk involved. But like, did SMB still just appeal to you far more? You know, what's interesting is that I have never, I'd never had the level of interest in investing and that style to ever, to, to be successful on that path. It just, I, I don't, there are some people who live and breathe it and that is not me. And so just the the idea of being more in operations and doing something in the small business space to me is just much more interesting than the idea of being in public market investing. That's just me. Ditto. I remember, I distinctly remember, so this was before made the decision with James and Trish to, to create Genmark, but I distinctly remember looking at the portfolio managers on my floor when I was in New York and hearing them say, you know, if I'm right 51% of the time, I'm killing it. Right. And if I can squeak out 50 basis points of alpha, you know, I'm killing it. And we only looked at the S&P 500. That was the entire universe for my entire floor. 
And and you knew every single person in the world was covering those companies. So you could look at the analyst coverage and it was you know, three pages long on Bloomberg. And I just I, I remember that moment of you know, this path that I'm on is designed to create is to turn me into a portfolio manager and they're sort of like the gods on the floor. But do I really think I'm gonna have an edge on the three hundred other people that are exposed to the exact same information that I have? And be comfortable that being right 51% of the time and getting 50 basis points of alpha is, is going to be what separates me from the other incredibly smart people who are focusing on the exact same companies. And I, I just knew that that wasn't going to be me. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. The com- competition would be a part of it. Like with, the, with any large hedge fund you're competing with, like you said, the smartest people on the planet. And within a lot of the regional businesses that you own and operate, you're you know, competing with maybe the smartest in a given county or state or city or what have you. You talked about that before early on as being part of your thought process with, you know, let's, let's compete at a, at a different game that we think we can win. Has that played out for the most part or there, has that thinking evolved somewhat since starting so many years ago? Not so many years ago, maybe 10, like seven years isn't that long. I think it's accurate. I think honestly, the more, impactful thing is twofold. One is it's not a zero-sum game, right? It's like which traditional finance is often going to be. You know, I win, you lose, right? If I win the trade, that means you lost the trade. Whereas in small business, it's not a zero-sum game. You know, other your competitors can win as well as you can win. And then the other piece is you just have a lot more agency in the small business world than you do in investing. Right. If you're, you know, you're not having an impact on an S&P 500 company or you know a Fortune 100 company. You're not. Nothing you say, you can write as many memos as you want. I'm sure some people will say, no, you know, I, I, I write open letters to the board and that moves the markets. Maybe there's a few people in the world who, who qualify for that category, but otherwise there's no agency. And I think those two, those two parts are, I think, more impactful than the sort of the, the scope of the competition. That's an interesting point about competition too, where maybe it's not, like with it not being zero sum, like one thing I've chatted with a few media folks about is if you're going to run a media business in a certain space, you don't necessarily want to be the only one there. Because if you're the only one, then sponsors for that that media landscape, that industry, probably aren't used to paying for sponsorships. So it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Whereas like kind of these well-trodden areas in media coverage are in many ways easier to start a business because you have an existing kind of base of customers and sponsors who are used to paying for that, that industry's media. Have you found that to be somewhat true for many of the areas that you operate in where having competition and knowing that there's competitors out there who are large and successful encourages you to some degree, knowing that it's possible to build a successful business in this area? Honestly, I haven't really thought much about that. I mean, there was for Chenmark, there's, I feel like we spent more time just thinking about like, what are the things that we're trying to achieve and how do we want to do it over the long term? Not necessarily like there's this other company out there that we want to be like. And, you know, on an operational level, yeah, I mean, having some other some other people in the market is good, especially if we have more scale and can point to those people as a differentiate, you know, that we are differentiated. So like an example of that would be you know, in landscaping, if if we're the largest in a certain market and have the ability to handle large properties, it, it can can be good, I suppose, if there are some other people out there who might fail doing those sorts of things. But otherwise, honestly, it's not really something we think much about. I think what you're what you're talking about is more like proving product market fit because we're looking at long tenured businesses that that's sort of already been established. So Look, I'd love myself a, a cornered resource. We talk about bait and tackle shops regularly. We've done it on your podcast as well. So finding those opportunities where there is no competition, but you have sort of a, a cornered resource or you have a, an edge of some sort, but maybe not maybe not super scalable. You know, those are very interesting businesses for us. But we also are in highly competitive industries as well, where differentiation is going to be oftentimes around the basics of core business fundamentals. Are you responsive? Are you professional? Are you reliable? Are you communicative? You know, are you easy to work with? You know, like stuff like that, that, you know, isn't rocket science. What we say is it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. And from those finance careers and all your operation focused career, what skills do you think transferred over 
the smoothest from finance to small business once you started to get going and then maybe what were some shortfalls that needed to get get brought up fairly quickly because there's a lot of folks who are coming from finance careers in the small business or research or what have you who you know, have certain skills but are missing others be curious what your experience experiences were i mean there there's a lot i think i mean the the there's one in my job, it was sort of, you had to research new ideas, be highly varied, but then having to distill them into essentially three bullet points of like, this is the gist of what this is, and then have an opinion on that is, you know, we should buy this or we should sell it is very, very valuable because in my role, having an ability to sort of take a lot of data, a lot of it imperfect, distill it down to a couple key points and make have a decision is, is a skill that we use all the time in a small business setting. And it is something that I'm thankful I was able to kind of hone beforehand. The other thing that is just general to Wall Street is a work ethic, I think, that gets beaten into you as, as a junior person in finance. But I think it also is a great way to start your career to understand that if you're the first person in the office and the last person to leave and you're very responsive and you know all of these certain things where the standards are very high, that that can serve you well for a long period of time because a lot of other parts of the world don't work like that. And knowing how to, you know, when to switch that on and when to switch that off and when that should be the standard, when it shouldn't be. It's certainly something we've kind of learned post Wall Street, but having that as our baseline, I think is is a very useful thing to learn as a young person. Yes, I was going to say that exact same thing, synthesizing information. I was going to put a sort of a bent around communication because oftentimes if you can synthesize it for yourself, that's great. That's like a half, maybe a quarter of the goal, especially if you're in a leadership position, you have to be able to clearly and concisely communicate that to others to, so that you can then transfer your understanding to them in a, in a streamlined way. In terms of what I probably was less prepared for, uh, certainly if you were to compare this to my finance time, where you know my floor was very much not like the boiler room experience. It was a library. Most people spent their entire days with their headphones on. It wasn't uncommon that you'd go grab lunch with a friend and realize you hadn't spoken a single word since you got there in the morning. And so that was like the learning curve there was the triage of just like all the stuff that that can come at you on a given day as a CEO or as a, you know, founding and running and, and trying to build Chenmark, just trying to zero in on what's the most important thing that I need to deal with today that's going to really push this ball forward because there's a million things that are wrong. There's a million and one things that can be done better, but what's the one or two or three things that I really need to be focusing on the rest. I just have to leave. Yeah. The prioritization is pretty interesting. What, when you like in, in finance in your previous role, like the roles you had just before time mark, when you, how did you prioritize tasks? And then did that change somewhat going to Chenmark? Well, I think the big difference is that we weren't bosses before. And so before, yeah, at least I, I was told what to do. And if I wasn't sure, I asked and somebody told me. And so, you know, the difference, and I remember this very, you know, clearly after we bought the first company, it's like, no one's going to tell you to do anything. And so, you know, what, what do you work on? How do you decide what to do? You know, these are all things that seem very easy when you're not the boss. And it's very easy to criticize a boss for like, I can't believe they did this, or they haven't gotten back to me on that thing I sent them. Or, you know, you think every time they leave the office, they're like going on vacation or something like that. And then you realize when you're on the other side of it, it's actually like, oh no, like that person was, was working all of the time. And that person also was dealing with so many other things that you know I only saw a very small sliver of, and I didn't appreciate everything that was on their plate. And so I never respected my bosses more than after I started Chenmark and I realized all the stuff they had to deal with. Because before, I just lived in this very like naive, sort of sheltered world where somebody gave me something and I did it. And if I did it well, I got more things and they told me good job. And I mean, that's a very easy, comfortable world to live in. 
home or anything that had for prioritization. I think the whole concept of like having to kind of create your job, like your day to day instead of responsibilities, instead of being given one, I think it's a, a pretty interesting area and moving even just from a like contributor to manager role, even if you're not the CEO, like that starts to kind of creep in where more and more your job is like less defined. Yeah, I'm not really. I think Trish Trish articulated really well, and I'd say I'm probably still not the best at it. I, I don't. I'm not as organized as I probably should be about setting priorities. I, I try and do it sort of on a more running basis because my experience has been every time I've. It's probably because I just don't do a good job of it. But every time I've tried to think critically about what priorities should be, situations then change and force cause me to have to reprioritize. So then I basically have said, "Screw it! Why am I spending all this time trying to prioritize when?" stuff's changed, changing all the time. So I just try and have a running list. And like, I, I think more thematically, like what themes am I trying to accomplish? And those change very much, much less frequently, right? And, but how they manifest and the methods that I will be using to try and achieve that theme might change. But the theme overall, hopefully is, is more. And so that's, I, I, I try and spend a lot more time trying to think like, all right, what are my, what are my big themes objectively or objectives to accomplish? And then what exactly I'm doing on a daily basis or exactly how I'm accomplishing that might change depending on what's happening day to day, week to week, month to month. And I think Palmer, I mean, I think you've articulated this really well previously, but just, you know, in, in, in starting the firm, we've all just had a focus on like, where can I add the most value to Trendmark? Full stop. Sometimes that is going to pick up lunch for the team. Sometimes that's, you know, meeting with a business owner interviewing an employee or whatever. But in terms of prioritizations, it's been, you know, to Palmer's point, big themes. I'd say for me, at least it's, you know, where can I add the most value to Chenmark? And then also, you know, what do I need to do to make sure that I can continue to do that for a long period of time, which means, you know, taking care of myself so I don't totally burn out. And as long as I'm doing those two things, then you know, that's good and other things may fall by the wayside or I'll pick them up later. But that's sort of my guiding principles for, for prioritization. And, and I have to give James a fair amount of credit, at least for me early on in terms of blocking off time to go to the gym. You know, it, that I think has been something we've done for years now. And for me is like a really good like mental release from the day and, and the stresses of the day and has been something that's been really valuable in terms of defending our time and prioritizations because it's not just the work prioritizations, it's the life prioritizations and making sure that all of those are somewhat in balance most of the time, even though obviously sometimes they can't be, but trying to make sure that you have a framework. So probably you know 70 to 80% of time, those things can be in balance. Yeah, can you talk more about those? There's Beyond just exercise, I imagine there's a bunch of ways to... you know take care of yourself and keep health, you know, as a priority. Cause I think it's, it's great to have a holding company with a long-term vision, but if you don't ever get to the long-term, like if there's not much point, like you have to be able to survive and make it that far. What kinds of things do you do to make sure that the health is a priority and that you're, you're still able to function be as you know excited and energy and, you know, balanced while you, while you work on Chenmark? Yeah. I mean, I, I love my day to day. And if there was no financial reward at the end for Chedmark, like I would be okay with that because I, I have a great life and being able to do a lot of interesting things. And I get to do a lot of things that I like every day. I think the focus on prioritization becomes a lot more important once you have kids because you can't really flex things as easily as you could. And so th- I think there's a saying that's like, if you want something done, like give it to a working mom because like they'll get it done. And I think there is some truth to that. That's why like James's mom always sends me like the to-do things because I just like, I don't know, you're just in a mode to like, when, when, when the time becomes constrained, it narrows, you know, it, it sharpens the mind. Just like there's that saying that like debt makes equity sweat, you know, like kids make time prioritization much easier. And so I think for me, I found like what works for me at least is when I'm doing something, I'm just focusing on doing that. So if I'm home with the kids, I am I, I am not being good at work or mom being a mom if I'm like trying to do both at the same time. 
So when I am at work, I'm 100% focused on work and trying to be very diligent and focused. And sometimes that might mean I'm not the most chit-chatty at work or whatever, because I am I am on task. But then when I go home, I turn my phone onto do not disturb mode during, you know, bedtime routine, whatever. I don't look at my phone. I'm focused on doing that. Then once the kids go to bed, which is usually around 7.30, then I log back on and I focus on doing that until I'm done with whatever needs to be done. So I found that the prioritization and the long-term focus of it for me is compartmentalizing and focusing on doing one thing well at a time. And then also just not beating myself up. If something doesn't get done, then like there's always more things to do. I will do it the next day or the next day, but not sort of holding myself to an unrealistic standard of being able... Like my kids go to lunch with like crappy peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day because like I don't have time to make like some weird bento box with like handwritten notes for my kids, right? So I'm just like, that is something that like, you know... (laughs) I cannot do that well. They will be fine with some goldfish and a PB&J for the next 10 years. And like, it just, just is what it is. My daughter also goes to school often without her hair combed because like not a priority, not going to worry about it. But then other things that are important, you know, like my daughter needs a little extra help with reading and writing. Like I will find time to spend 15 to 20 minutes every single day to go over that with her. It's like that is important. So you know, just not beating myself up about things, not trying to be perfect and everything, letting some things go, but then like really focusing on things when I'm trying to do them. That's at least what I try to do. I probably get it right like 70% of the time. Or what about you? Any elaborate health routines for you to stay focused and sharp? <laughs> no, compared to James and Trish, I mean, they, they, they take health and wellness to a new level. Like, Trish, do you still have your, your glucose monitor on you? No, I took it off for the holidays. I didn't want to feel bad about my <laughs> lifestyle decisions. I mean, they're, they're, they, they take the like keep score to like the whole, like a personal level as well. I also don't have kids. So I, like, I have a lot more flexibility in terms of being able to like let time expand a bit. My thing is like, I like to decompress the end of the day and sort of like process. So like what I, I, I do kind of like the opposite of what James and Trish do, which is like, they'll, they'll work in chunks basically throughout the entire day. It's not uncommon for them to be emailing me or, or anyone at like 10 o'clock at night, right before they go to bed. Where for me, that's fairly rare because I tend to like wake up, I go to work immediately. I stay at work for a long time. I do my work. And then like when I leave to go to the gym, then like ideally my day is done. And if I'm working after that, that means you know, that's the 30% of the time when things aren't aren't going to plan. And you know, you, you got to flex a little bit. And then same thing, like try and take Saturdays completely off and then work a bit on Sundays. You know, so if I'm working on Saturday, that's the, that's the flex time to like, you know, didn't, didn't want to do that necessarily, or that's not the, that's not the goal, but sometimes it's, it's necessary, but I'm sure that in my not too distant future, when kids are a reality that I will have to adopt more of a James and Trish approach to my time, hopefully with similar ability to sharpen my my focus and my productivity. I, I feel like I've had to have a a mental recalibration of the definition of downtime. So you know, as because it's too it's, you know, as family life gets busier, but also Chenmark has grown. So there's more Chenmark responsibilities as well. So kind of everything compounds to be more and more and more and more. That, you know, I used to think oh, you know, I need, quote unquote, need, you know, certain amount of, quote unquote, downtime to recharge. And over time, I've had to change my definition and the story I'm telling myself about what I need to recharge. You know, so now my recharge time is my gym time. Because like, that's, I I don't have any other free time. But for me, like that, that works. And I mean, it's, our oldest is six years now, so it's taken five to six years to, to get to that you know, point. But I think a lot of it is, you know, what you're sort of telling yourself about what you need in terms of downtime. And then for me, the most important thing is staying physically active. Like that's just really important to me. It makes me feel so much better. So prioritizing getting to the gym. And even if I can't, like I'll just take my phone calls walking around outside. Like even when it's freezing outside or raining or whatever. Like I come to work like with my rain boots and my jacket on and I will walk around our office outside for an hour taking phone calls, 
just so I get outside and get some fresh air, I'm doing something. For me, that makes a huge difference. And I also feel like if I just tell people like, hey, you know what? I'm taking this call while walking around outside. Most of the time, everyone's like, cool, sounds good. So I feel like just not being shy about doing the things you need to do to, to take care of yourself. Where I think that when I worked, before I worked for myself or, you know, for Chenmark, I was probably more hesitant to just do the things I needed to do because I felt like, you know, there's somebody out there who might think that was a bad idea. To your point of like having as routines, I know personally for me, that helps a lot. Like if I, you know, if I run in a given day, like that day, the rest of that day goes so much better. And I, I, I feel my energy level feels more balanced throughout the day. How much iteration and improvements have you had since starting Chenmark till now? Like what, what have been some of the, the iterations of your the health and wellness practices? I don't, uh, I've been pretty consistent, to be honest. James and I go to CrossFit almost every day. And then we just keep doing that. So I haven't really had a lot of, you know, big iterations. But I have a good friend of mine a long time ago told me like, you know, it, you can have three things in your life, you know, any, any given time, you know, so right now I've got, you know, Chenmark, family and fitness. Those are like the three things I have. The nice thing about making sure I have fitness or working out is even if things are going terrible at Chenmark, you know, something, somebody quit or something and my kids are, yeah, you go know, both have colds and being annoying, then like at least probably I'll get a decent workout, you know, or like if my workout sucks and still something bad is happening at Chenmark, like maybe my kids are being awesome that day. So I, I view sort of how I set up my life as sort of a lot of the concepts of Chenmark applied to my life is just diversification and long-term thinking. And if I have some diversification in my life, probably one thing's going well at any given time, that'll kind of give me the boost I need to focus on the things that aren't going well. And just try to focus on doing those things well every day. You know, and over time, good things happen. I want to transition just a little bit to some of your your early acquisitions, like maybe the first three. Like if you if you think back to the original three companies you purchased, what were some process improvements you made at each acquisition? Like what what do you feel like you got better at the most from one to three? What became very clear within those first three, uh, I've said it a couple different ways a few times, is there's there's no especially when you come from a, a, an analyst finance background where your job is to sort of ask questions and then answer those questions and you have reams of data to, to do so. There's no end of, of very interesting questions that could be relatively very illuminating and could yield you know, incredible business results if you could you know, find the answer or at least glean the answer and, and you could then make better decisions. What we realized very quickly is the ability to have the data to even address those questions was severely hampered. And so phase one was just, let's figure out a way to get accurate, clean, hopefully as close to real-time data, business intelligence of some variety, in a, in a way that's not so cost prohibitive that the value of the data is now neutralized. And that will allow... CEOs who don't have prior experience in those businesses to make good decisions, right? Because without that, you need 30 years of gut experience to be able to guide a company and, and sort of manage it, manage by feel. But when you don't have that, and when you're trying to cut the learning curve, you realize very quickly, I, I need some frameworks on how to think about how things are going. I need to set up systems and KPIs, not to necessarily track every minute thing, but to at least bring in some checks and balances and and to throw up some red flags so I know what I need to focus on, right? Because you can only focus on a few things. And I think for me, the, in the first three, it just became very clear that in, in the world of small business, step one of acquiring a business, especially because we knew we were going to be owning them indefinitely and uh, trying to optimize for long-term free cash flow generation is, hey, we need to make sure that this business is set up in a way that we can acquire good in business intelligence, good data about our business in as close to real time as possible. So we can actually keep score and then we can put ourselves in a position to make good decisions. And just, I mean, totally agree with everything Palmer said. And then, you know, just the the story I'd say of the first five years of Chenmark is just hammering home that 
the person who runs the business is the most important person at Genmark. You know, so who is whoever is in that CEO seat can have a tremendous impact on the business. It can either be a tremendously good impact or a tremendously bad impact on the business. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we're picking the right people to be in, in the seat and then giving those people, you know, the the support and resources they need to to do a good job. And, you know, probably first one through three plus, you know, we've had some wonderful people we've partnered with in the first couple of acquisitions who are still with us, who have done a, a tremendous job of leading their businesses through, you know, good opportunities, difficult times, all those things. And I think are a true embodiment of, of Chenmark and Chenmark's values. And, and we're very proud and honored to be associated with those people. You know, there are other people that have, have you know, did not do well within the Chenmark ecosystem and, and are no longer with us. And, you know, those, those experiences really helped us hone in kind of going back to the core values discussion, hone on, and on what is important to us and the people that are leading the business, what are the things they need to be able to do, as well as the standards they need to set from a behavioral standpoint. We learned a lot about that in our first couple acquisitions just through lived experience. And that's why the, the GVP program for us is so important and why, you know, the people running our businesses, you know, as I said previously, are just, they are Chenmark. If they do a good job and grow our businesses, Chenmark will, will thrive. And if they don't, you know, we will have to figure out, you know, a different thing to do, but they're very, very important to us. What have been some helpful tools for evaluating that initial and then ongoing evaluation of your different CEOs? Like I, I mentioned, that GVP program is great because you get to get to know this person over months or maybe even years before they're a CEO somewhere. But there's only so much you can learn about you know, the existing CEO or number two within a company within a diligence period. So how do you kind of conduct that initial and then ongoing evaluation of a CEO? We will only acquire a business uh, where the CEO is requ- is retiring, um, and so that leaves two options. One is a second in command that can step up. That is honestly a subjective thing. It's it's worked a couple times for us previously, and so something we would evaluate on a case by case basis. But the standard is is very high. I think that the majority of vast majority of new CEOs for us will be coming out of the GVP program over time. And that's because we've had the ability to work with those people for you know a period of time in different settings with lots of different people involved in the process to make sure that you know they're they're ready for the role and that they you know basically embody our core values. Yeah, I think the the only thing I'd add is the the number two in command is a is a very rare thing. In in the sense that they have been read in into the totality of the business, it's very common to find someone. Oh, this is this is my number two person. This is my right hand person, and they're heavily operationally focused. And then it doesn't take that many questions to to realize, hey, you know, are they read into the financials? Of course not. I would no, I'd never show them how much money I make. Okay, well, so now there's this whole world of budgeting, capital budgeting, a- asset allocation that like you have you've sheltered them from. And they're starting from ground zero, and so that's going to be very hard, you know, for us to then bring them into a CEO position right away and, and expect them to be at a certain level, certain threshold level to, to be a true CEO. So, it, honestly, we so we had done it twice. It's been very very successful, gone great for us. I, I can't, I'm not in search on a day to day basis anymore, but I, I can't remember another situation where we've come across businesses where there's been a true number two who's been read into not just the operation, the product or service that the business provides, but the entirety of the business. That's sales, marketing, finance, HR, right? The whole thing. It's, it's quite rare in small business. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Within kind of the performance element, you talked earlier about performance and how there's, you know, you need to be able to measure it, but like there's, of course, lots of different forces acting on someone's performance. How does performance come into your evaluation of a CEO, I imagine it's 
big factor in terms of just maybe financial performance as a as one metric, but how do you fit performance into an overall evaluation for a CEO? It's basically a fairly simple rubric of there, there are performance metrics. So those are sort of hard and objective and there's behaviors, right? And those are going to lead towards lean towards our core values. Right? And so when, when we're evaluating Chenmark people or CEOs, we're evaluating them on those two dimensions, right? Are their behaviors in line with what we want them to be doing? Right. And, and do they mesh with our core values and our expectations? And, and is the performance there? You certainly get to a level. I mean, both, both matter. And, but to your point of, you know, sometimes performance can be influenced by other things. Yes, that's true. But ultimately, like you're at a level where excuses don't matter when you're a CEO of a small business. And so like, you are a reflection of, of your performance metrics. But again, those are snapshots in time. So, and because we're long term oriented, we're, we're focused on playing the long game. We understand that that's not necessarily your story forever, but it is your story for right now. And, and you can't hide that. One other, like beyond the, you mentioned you're not in the the search point anymore, or at least Palmer, you're not involved in like you know, the M and A process for for Chenmark. But within the the search world or the just entrepreneurship through acquisition broadly, what changes do you feel like you've observed the most strongly since starting Chenmark? Like what's become harder or easier, or is is the search world changing in ways that you didn't expect or you think are Pretty interesting. What's what are most notable changes you've seen over the last couple of years? Last couple of years, I mean, that, there's an easy easy one for sure. Is like the people that are the number of people that are interested in Holdco's has gone from exactly zero to a lot more than zero, which I think is is great. I've always told any searcher, any prospective searcher, anyone who's interested in ETA that, that calls me or wants to talk, I always say this, my, my only single piece of advice is there's no right way to play small business. And don't let anyone tell you that there's a right way and a wrong way. I distinctly remember people telling us that what we were doing was the wrong way. And now there's cold conferences dedicated to hold coast, which, you know, in, in the span of seven years, which I think is kind of ironic. So that's definitely one very easy change that I've seen. There's a lot more conferences as I mean, the space is getting more attention. I also think there's a lot of people out there who've been doing stuff in this space. There just was no way to organize them previously. So I think it's great that there have been a lot of sort of efforts made to kind of bring people with sort of similar interests together for them to share information, kind of have a community around it. So I think I think that's wonderful. I don't really know the statistics of you know, I think there's a lot more talk about ETA and search funds and attendance at the conferences and these sorts of things. How much of that translates into people actually doing searches and actually buying businesses? Honestly, I haven't read any of the studies and I don't really know. I do think that we have observed more people going, to, you know, more funding being available. And for the people who are in it, going to slightly higher deals with more growth prospects and higher multiples, I think has become more of a thing over the past five years. Like SaaS businesses, I feel like when we started, weren't really in the ETA search fund sort of, you know, radar. And now they, you know, that's like the, the, the typical deal in the space. So I think there's been sort of, as more investors come into the market, you know, slightly different, you know, emphasis on different types of deals and, and things like that. But to Palmer's point, the space is so big and so fragmented and so inefficient that I think there's probably a thousand different ways people could express themselves in this space and each be successful in their own way. You know, what we're doing is a reflection of what's interesting to us. A deal that might be, you know, a good fit for us may not be a good fit for someone else and, and vice versa. So, you know, for us, it's wonderful that there are more people interested in the space because it means there are you know, it's legitimizing the idea of being a small business CEO. And we're recruiting for small business CEOs. And the more that that's seen as a legitimate career path, you know, the better for us and and less of a sort of, you know, people are taking a little bit less of a perceived, again, not real, but perceived career risk by doing something in the small business space, which I think is a great thing. That's a good point. And I want to dive into your GP pre-program 
in the, I think the third episode, it's going to be a lot of fun. But in this first one, like, what have I not asked you that I should be asking you? I think, I think what a lot of people don't ask is whether we're enjoying ourselves and whether we like our lives and, you know, whether we regret it at all or any of those things. Because as Palmer knows, you know, the Excel model that we built for, for Chenmark hasn't changed since we started it. And like it's, it is, we are in execution mode, but we'll be in execution mode for like the next 20 years. And along the way, people should also probably ask themselves and people like us whether they enjoy what they're doing every day. And if you don't like working with people in small business, you know, everybody up and down the org chart, and you're not excited by, you know, implementing the new ERP system and getting data on unit economics and figuring that out, or, you know, figuring out how do we hire new people or adjust pay rates or like, can you believe that crazy thing that happened, you know, this morning when that person like went, you know, flipped out at me or whatever, you know, it might be. Or in my case, you know, having to step in to work in a parking lot for a big part of the summer and, you know, have people swear at me because I was charging them $20 for parking because that's what was needed. Like, those are all things that, like we like to refer to as like we want texture in our lives and all sorts of interesting experiences and meeting with you know all different types of people and and we find that to be incredibly rewarding and deeply enriching experiences and i think i mentioned previously that if the excel model is wrong and there isn't this you know pot of money if that i earn because we've you know have delayed gratification and the flywheel doesn't work you know i I'm having such a fun time with what we're doing that like that would still be okay for me. And I think that if people get into this space just because of like the financial reward and the Excel model, I think they're in for like a really tough road because you do have to be engaged in the work and I think you have to enjoy it for, for it to actually work for you. So I do think those two things go together, but most people don't ask if we like our work. And I think that that's a worthwhile question. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like for the most part you do, but maybe, maybe there's, I'm sure there's nuance too. Like there's some parts you enjoy and some you don't. And maybe there's ways to emphasize what you do like and de-emphasize what you don't. But yeah, what's the, what's the more nuanced look at each of your roles or what you like and don't like? Yeah, so I mean, of course, no one's going to love every single second of every single day, right? Like there's no way Trish enjoyed being in the parking lot, being the parking lot attendant. Right. There, there's no way I enjoy like getting reamed out by an employee, but which happened this morning. So, you know, there's, there's definitely parts of your day that you don't like, but to, I think Trish said it perfectly. Like you have to enjoy the journey because it is like, it is the journey. There is really no end destination. And so on balance, do you like what you're working towards knowing that not everything is, is going to feel awesome? And for me, I relate it, I relate it to, sports in college, but like, I didn't really engage in the process of like training intently until I got to college and then sort of found a joy of training, which I, which was really helpful to me getting a lot better. And so I don't know really what clicked, but I realized that I spend, you're going to spend most of your time training and very little of your time actually competing. And in certain sports, the, the ratio is like uber extreme, right? You go to James's world and crew and it's, He's, you know, he's, he's racing for like six minutes at a time and he's training for four hours a day. My, my ratio is slightly better than that. But if you don't enjoy the training, even when you feel like you're going to puke, even when you feel like you're going to pass out, right, then, then you're not going to, you're not really going to compete well. And so trying to find a way to enjoy the, the training, enjoy the journey, enjoy the process of building a business, understanding that along the way, certain aspects of that might be pretty uncomfortable or um, pretty unappealing, then, you know, you're not going to make it, right? You're not going to be able to play the long game. To your point, Alex, about, you know, you have to make it through the long term in order to play the long game. Uh, And so that's what I try and focus on is those bad days, those bad moments. You know, okay, on balance, would would I rather be doing something else? No, hell no. I think one thing I've told myself is there's something, you know, 
I don't know. I hate employee conflict things. Like I just really don't enjoy that at all. And one thing I've always told myself is like the the, the only thing worse than having to do this is not being able to do this. And so like it sucks, but I I get to do it and 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 that is rewarding. And so that's the only thing that, you know, I remind myself of when I'm in those situations because in our world, I mean, Palmer knows like we deal with things we don't want to deal with like very regularly. But you have to find some sort of you know reward or value or, you know, joy in in those things, those hard things because that's really what it's all about. Is it that kind of focus on the long-term goal that's helped you enjoy the lesser fun project or pieces of being a CEO? Are there other kind of tools or things that you've done over time where it, it helps kind of reframe your mind to enjoy tasks that are you know, less fun to do? I don't know. James and Palmer, I feel like we have an ability to laugh about like the really crappy things and at least keep, you know, a, a light mood about hard things, which I think is helpful for me at least. I mean, some of the crappy things like they're, they're essential, right? If they weren't essential, then you wouldn't do them, right? Like, so you I put things through a filter of like, do I need to be doing this, right? Is, like whether you, you want to use the urgent important framework or some other framework, like, do I really need to be doing this? And the answer is like, yes, ultimately, like I do have to be doing this thing that I'd rather not do. Well, then it's, it's pretty simple, right? If you don't do it, all you're doing is screwing yourself over, maybe screwing your future self over, and probably screwing James and Trish over as my partners. So like, that's not super appealing. So you kind of just got to suck it up and do it. So like that, that would be one component. Another phrase that I repeat to myself all the time, which is a quote from a movie that I, I appreciate, like, I'm not a huge fan of, but it just has stuck with me ever since. Vanilla Sky, like arguably not the best Tom Cruise movie at all. Top Gun is. But there's a quote in that movie, the sweet isn't as sweet without the sour. And I think that I, I don't know why, but I, it's always stuck with me. And I repeat it to myself very, very regularly that, you know, those moments of doing crappy stuff or dealing with employee conflict, which I also don't like dealing with, like the, the wins, the times when an employee tells you, I, I've never felt like I had a career until I came to this place, or I've never felt more engaged in what I do professionally than since coming here. And, and thank you for providing me that opportunity or thank you for, you know, doing this thing that, that really helped me and my family. That's super rewarding. And I'd say even more rewarding and more impactful having gone through some of the crappy things. I'm not scientifically minded, but there's the, the idea that we remember happy and joyous moments a lot better than pain and suffering moments from your past. Like the, your brain tends to de-emphasize pain and emphasize like what went well or what was happy. But there's a bit of that too, like knowing that the highs are high and that'll keep you going and let you kind of de-emphasize you know, uh, uncomfortable or awful moments probably helps a bit too over time. That's great to know. That's actually, that's the opposite of like reward, like loss aversion, right? Isn't that the classic psychological framework that you feel losses wor- worse than you feel gains? It could be. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's flipped where, you know, looking forward, you're afraid of losing something in the future. But if you have lost something, you maybe like think about it less then I don't know. I think Michelle was talking about we've that. Now t- we've now turned everyone around on this podcast. We have, yeah. You might want to cut that. I thought we'll cut it. <laughs> this is more, this is less of a constructive thought, but I thought I remember seeing something about that. I'm fascinated by like how people like interpret like loss or like gains, like, like on, on both ends, like how does it affect like your psychology or like, if you had a really rough quarter or year and like, that has that have, how does that have impacts you know going forward into into the future? I think the nuance is you feel a loss more than you feel a gain, but you remember a gain more than you remember a loss. I, th- I think that's the nuance. Yeah, that's why that's why like it you people like like overreact when the stock market goes down a couple percent, but it's also why people have more than one child. Wise words. I'd say perspective also helps as you have like, and this this will tie all the way back to the core values. Playing the long game forces you to think in longer time horizons, right? So when you have the bad quarter or even the bad year, I've had them and think back, okay, 
well, let's put this bad year into perspective. Well, hell, three years ago, I would have killed for this to be my bad year. Right. And so like, yeah, I'm not satisfied with a bad year. Right. You, you, you sort of chew over the, the missed opportunities or the, the losses, but yeah, you have some perspective that, well, all right, I'm in this for the long term. Right. This year wasn't the best year, but I'm, I'm working on problems or I'm, I'm solving things that, you know, I, I could only have dreamed of three years ago. So grand scheme of things like could be a lot worse and focus on getting better tomorrow. Yeah, that also sounds right. At least that too. Thank you both so much for taking part in this series. It's been excited about it for a while. So I'm, I'm glad we're able to get to do it. Um, and you're willing to share a little bit more. It's a, you have a fun group to dive into more. So this has been fun. But yeah, thank you for sharing a little bit more. Of course. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. Mm-hmm.